Uh, my name's David Howard. I'm the chair of the trust, and it's an honor to work with uh, John Moneyman and the other trustees in helping to uh, provide this lecture every year. The trust is uh, in memory of David Nichols, who many of you will know personally or know of as a great polymath, a theologian, a political scientist, uh, uh, an expert on Caribbean scholarship, particularly on, on Haiti and Trinidad. So each year we have an annual lecture, uh, and it's a great pleasure to have Professor Gad Human with us this year. Um, we also, during, during the year, offer two scholarships, or two or three scholarships, for students wishing to pursue Caribbean studies. So I do encourage, uh, if you are in the academia, or you have sons, daughters, or you yourself are interested in engaging in Caribbean scholarship, then do go to the soon-to-be-revamped David Nichols website, and uh, we do have these scholarships every year for travel and study uh, in, in Caribbean topics. Um, we also have a, a large uh, group of friends of David Nichols' uh, Memorial Trust. Um, unfortunately, we don't have many email addresses, so each year we post out letters, and we're going to leap into the 21st century, and we're trying to sort of gather email addresses. So I would encourage you, um, I've left four or five of the lists of friends, um, and it would be great if your name's on the list, if you're able to add your email. And if you're not on the list, but would like to have one email a year to remind you of the Nichols Lecture, then do please add your name and email address, and we'll, uh, we'll energize that emailing list. But we will still keep sending out the, uh, a letter per year and a newsletter, which will appear for Christmas or thereabouts, just to cover the, uh, the activities of the Trust. So um, today's uh, event, uh, lecture, it is a great honor to have uh, Gad here today. And today is important because uh, many of you will know the, um, the Global Slavery Index uh, was announced today for 2013. And this is an independent analysis. The International Labour Organization estimates there are 21 million people today in the world uh, enslaved in conditions of slavery. Uh, this recent report uh, by the uh, Walk Free uh, um, Association um, have assessed there are just under 30 million people living in slavery today. So Gad's talk is very pertinent, uh, clearly for those who are working under conditions of bondage, under slavery, and trafficking. And of the 30 million people in, in, uh, under in conditions of slavery today, 14 million are in, in India. But if you look at the country that has the second highest proportion of people who are living uh, under slavery today, it is Haiti. So I think there are, there are many connections, and many unfortunate connections we make with uh, slavery today. Uh, um, but Gad, uh, his work has focused on slavery and emancipation, and it's great pleasure that we have Gad with us, who's an eminent historian uh, globally on Caribbean history, particularly focusing on slavery, post-emancipation. He's produced a series of works uh, looking at that transition from slavery to freedom. Um, he's the editor, or has been the editor for many years, of Abolition of Slavery, the leading academic journal in this field. Um, his travels have started off, I think, in, well, started off in Columbia and Yale as a student and, and researcher, and for many years he's been the professor of history at the University of Warwick, but also the former director of the Centre for Caribbean Studies uh, at Warwick. So it's with great pleasure we welcome you, and today Gad will talk to the, the title of Is This What You Call Free? The Caribbean After Slavery. Well, uh, thank you very much for that, uh, and thank the Trust for the invitation uh, to give this lecture. It's very nice to say, I was going to say, a lot of old friends here today. 
I mean friends, of course, of long standing, not friends, not old friends. But you know who you are. Um, but like, like many of you here, uh, I knew David well. And I knew him not just as a, a fellow Caribbeanist, which as you've just heard he was, but also as a friend and a very special individual. In my Caribbean course at, at Warwick, I always included a section on Haiti and the Haitian Revolution. And I frequently invited David to lecture on the subject uh, to my students. And those of you who, who knew him won't be surprised that student students loved it when he came. Uh, his lectures were fascinating. Of course, so was he. And students indeed could see that. They were aware of his contribution to Haitian scholarship, but they were also aware that he was a highly accomplished scholar and priest, someone who was able to straddle those two worlds in very interesting ways. He was also, uh, as you may have heard in a minute, Can you hear that now? Uh, David was also a supporter of the Center for Caribbean Studies, which was established in 1984. And he came to several of our early conferences, not only to do with Haiti, but also to do with the role of intellectuals in the Caribbean and also current developments in the region. David's scholarly work on Haiti focused on the aftermath of slavery. Uh, and I thought I would take up that theme today, hence, the Caribbean after slavery. But I also, also want to explain the title, Is This What You Call Free? In Dominica, in the Eastern Caribbean, that's not Dominica, anyway. Uh, so here's Dominica here, in the Eastern Caribbean. A magistrate was visiting some of the largest estates in the island soon after the ending of slavery in 1838. The magistrates asked a, a group of ex-slaves for their views on the situation. One very forthright woman said, quote, she'd been a slave all her life and would never work for anybody again. Now we know this was a commonly held view among uh, ens formerly enslaved people. But another woman on the estate asked a more specific question. She asked if she could go to town for a week or two and then return to work on the estate. The magistrate told her that actually she needed permission to do so. She needed permission to go to town and come back. So what was her response? Is this what you call free? So some of the questions I want to address today include uh, how did slavery end? What followed in the immediate aftermath of the abolition of slavery? And like that formerly enslaved woman in Dominica, what was the meaning of freedom? So let me turn then to part one, the end of slavery. Many of you will remember the celebrations and commemorations of the abolition of the slave trade in 2007. You will recall that a lot of attention, rightly in my view, was given to the role of the abolitionists. And of course, to the role of this man, William Wilberforce. And some of, you, some of you will know this has become a very contentious and hotly debated issue. The Trinidad historian and subsequent prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, Eric Williams, who did his defil in Oxford in the 1940s, wrote a thesis and then a book, Capitalism and Slavery, 
in which he argued for the importance of economics rather than humanitarianism in the abolition of the slave trade and slavery itself. And here is a somewhat unflattering picture of Eric Williams. And his thesis, the Williams thesis, has become a major debate among historians of abolition. But what about the role of the enslaved themselves? What about the role of the slaves? Did slaves have any impact on the ultimate ending of slavery itself? And I think the answer is yes. The enslaved in the Caribbean, remarkably, I think, were aware of the activities of the abolitionists in Britain. And in many ways, this knowledge inspired them to resist the institution of slavery. The first serious manifestation of this resistance occurred in Barbados in 1816. So those of you who have not had the good experience of going to Barbados, here it is. The British government was seeking to establish a register of all the slaves in the Caribbean, in the English-speaking Caribbean. Among other things, the government was worried, the British government was worried about the possibility of slaves being traded illegally, despite the abolition of the slave trade nine years earlier. But some of the enslaved in Barbados believed that this registration, this registration act, was actually a plan for their emancipation. And some slaves believed that freedom was being withheld from them. One literate domestic slave, whose name was Nanny Grigg, claimed that the enslaved were to be free, or to be freed, on Easter Monday, 1816. This is what she had to say about it. As you can see, she said the only way to get it was to fight for it. Otherwise, they would not get it, and the way they were to do it was to set fire, as this was, a, this was the way they did in San Domingo. San Domingo, of course, for her, she was talking about San Domingue, Haiti. So Haiti was the example for Nanny Grigg. When the slave rebellion in Barbados did break out, it did so, it, it spread to a third of the island. Indeed, it broke out on Easter Sunday, 1816. And the leaders of the rebellion timed it to coincide with the peak of the harvest season. And the enslaved made use of arson in an attempt to obtain their freedom. However, the rebellion, which was subsequently known as Buss's Rebellion, after the name of one of its alleged leaders, proved short-lived and the repression was savage. And here is a, an image. If you've traveled in Barbados, you may have seen this. This is a statue in Barbados representing uh, Bussa. There was a similar backdrop to the Demerara Slave Rebellion in 1823, seven years later. So we're talking about this particular area here of, of Guyana. Again, as in the case of Barbados, the enslaved believed that local whites were withholding their freedom. In this case, the context of the rebellion was the formation of the Anti-Slavery Society in Britain and the beginning of the abolitionist campaign here. The rebellion in Demerara broke out in August 1823, involving thousands of the enslaved. Like the Barbados uprising, it was repressed severely with the death of about 250 enslaved people. The planters linked the rebellion to the work of the humanitarians and more specifically to the chapel in Demerara of Reverend John Smith, a missionary for the London Missionary Society. As in Barbados and in Demerara, the enslaved in, Jamaica, the enslaved in Jamaica in 1831, eight years later, concluded that they too had been freed. 
When the rebellion broke out just after Christmas, 1831, it was the largest outbreak Jamaica had seen. So here's a, a map of Jamaica, and the, rebel the area of the rebellion was this sort of area, St. James, the western part of Jamaica. This parish particularly, but also Hanover and the borders of Westman. This whole area was more or less in flames. And here's an example, or a portrayal, of an estate. I wish we were a little bit clearer, but a, a destruction of an estate. In fact, if you look carefully, I don't know if you can see it, but here is a depiction of rebels attacking this estate. Speaking of this rebellion, one report claimed that 20,000 slaves were involved in the uprising. It spread throughout western Jamaica, and 226 estates sustained damages involving more than a million pounds sterling. That was then, so you can imagine the value of it now. As in Demerara, missionaries were implicated, and the leader of the rebellion, Sam Sharp, was a class leader, as he was called, in the Baptist church, as well as a, a daddy, a major figure in the native Baptist church. And here's a representation we have of, of Sharp. In the aftermath of the rebellion, which the authorities suppressed ferociously, whites attacked missionaries and tore down their chapels, blaming them for the rebellion. Indeed, the rebellion was called the Baptist War. The Jamaican slave rebellion made it clear to many in Britain that slavery could not continue. The abolitionists were now seeking immediate emancipation, and after 1832, the reformed House of Commons was likely, likely to be more responsive to popular pressure. One of the Baptist missionaries attacked in Jamaica after the rebellion, William Nibb, toured England after the rebellion, recounting the horrors of the rebellion, the horrors of slavery, and seeking its abolition. And this is William Nibb. <clears throat> So the enslaved in Jamaica helped to make it impossible for slavery to continue in the British Empire. In fact, the leader of the Jamaican rebellion, Sharp, said just before he was hanged for leading the rebellion, he said, quote, I would rather die in yonder, yonder gallows than live in slavery. Although Sharp did not live to see the end of slavery, the rebellion had a significant effect in promoting the cause of emancipation. One week after Sharp's death, the House of Commons established a committee to look into the best means of abolishing slavery. Let me turn then to uh, part two, talking about apprenticeship and apprentices. So it wasn't just the politicians who were thinking about the abolition of slavery. Think about Whitehall, think about the bureaucracy, in this case it was the colonial office, the department responsible for the colonies. Think about the responsibility of making proposals how, how, on how all this should happen. How should roughly 750,000 people be freed? What kind of policies should be enacted? So officials in the colonial office were struck by the need to free the enslaved, while at the same time still retaining the basic structure of plantation society in their colonies. In their minds, one of the potential dangers for the enslaved was a reversion to what they called barbarism once the enslaved became free. Henry Taylor, who was the senior official in the West India Department of the Colonial Office, therefore devised a plan based on the Spanish model of manumission. Here is a curious image of Henry Taylor. Under this system, his idea, 
the British government would de declare the enslaved free for one day. Thereafter, slaves would, could use the proceeds of working on that day to buy further days of freedom. Taylor's superior, Taylor's political superior, Lord Howick, who was the Undersecretary of State for the colonies, sought to solve the, the labor problem in a different way. His solution was to impose a tax on the ex-slave's provision grounds, which would force the freedmen to work for wages on the estates to pay the tax. Although neither scheme was ever adopted, the rationale in each case was clear. For the colonial office, freedom and continued sugar cultivation on the plantations were inextricably linked. In fact, the final act to emancipate the enslaved was a compromise worked out by the government with representatives of the Anti-Slavery Society and the West Indian planters. At its heart was the establishment of an apprenticeship system. The enslaved would be free, but become apprentices. They would work for their former masters for up to 45 hours a week without pay, without pay. So clearly a form of continued compulsory labor for the 45 hours a week that the law required. The legislation itself separated uh, field and skilled slaves, with skilled slaves ending their apprenticeship after four years, while field slaves would do so after six. Children under the age of six were to be freed immediately, and special magistrates were to be appointed, largely from here, to oversee the workings of the system. Most important from the planter's point of view was a grant, as I'm sure most of you know, of 20 million pounds compensation for the loss of their slaves. A huge sum, and in today's terms, I think worth billions of pounds. Of course, uh, one can easily note that there was nothing for the enslaved. 20 million pounds compensation for their owners and nothing for the enslaved. So for the officials responsible for the creation of the apprenticeship system, it was a necessary bridge between slavery and freedom. For them, for these officials, it was important that there was a, a gradual transition from slavery to full freedom. They could not envision freeing all the enslaved without this transitional period of adjustment. Not surprisingly, however, many apprentices across the British Caribbean found this a difficult concept to accept. In fact, all over the Caribbean, there was resistance to the idea of an apprenticeship system. Apprentices in St. Kitts reacted particularly strongly against the idea of an apprenticeship system. So St. Kitts is up here. At the onset of emancipation on the 1st of August, 1834, laborers on the island's plantations of St. Kitts resolved not to work without pay. Some of the apprentices said, quote, they would give their souls to hell and their bodies to the sharks rather than to be bound to work as apprentices. The authorities declared martial law, rounded up the striking apprentices who had fled, and forced all the apprentices back to work. Further afield in the Caribbean, there were also serious difficulties among the apprentices. In Trinidad, the apprentices vowed to strike and reiterated some of the same themes as those in St. Kitts. Trent is down here. According to one report, the Trinidad apprentices believed that the king had freed them outright, and that apprenticeship was a plan hatched by their masters and by the governor. For the apprentices, the planters, as they said, were damned teeth, and the governor an old rogue. 
After all, the king had enough money, they said, to buy them fully out of slavery and was not such a fool as to make them only half free. Again, there was a, a problem with the logic of apprenticeship. The apprentices could not understand how the king could call them free and yet force them to work for their former owners. Parroting the concept of apprenticeship, the apprentices also claimed that they already knew their work sufficiently and did not need an, did not need an apprenticeship of any kind. Apprentices in Jamaica shared these views and also reacted negatively uh, to the apprenticeship system. In one parish, apprentices went on strike, vowing not to work unless they were paid. One report claimed that the apprentices swore, quote, they will have their heads cut off or shot before they'll be bound as apprentices. As in other parts of the Caribbean, apprentices questioned whether the king could be responsible for the legislation or whether instead it emanated from Jamaica. They asked the authorities a series of rather telling questions. This is what they said talking about the apprenticeship system. Is it the king's law? Would you swear the king make it? Did, Jamaica, did, did the Jamaica House make it? That means, did the Jamaica House of Assembly make it? Did it come from Jamaica itself? Did not Lord Sligo put him name to it because him have slaves? Lord Sligo was the governor of Jamaica and a plantation owner and a slave owner. And finally, could you swear it is the law of Jesus Christ? Was it natural law? There was another level of protest which was more generalized and more difficult to control. The anthropologist James Scott has described this behavior of peasants in terms of hidden transcripts, using foot dragging or poaching as part of an everyday form of resistance. Apprentices in Jamaica employed such tactics. Governor Sligo commented on the reaction of many apprentices who were unhappy with the new system. They resorted to turning out late irregularity to work, and idling of time. To some degree, these delinquencies were dealt with by the special magistrates. But there was the additional problem of what planters perceived as insolence and insubordination. The use of language was quite significant in this context. A special magistrate, E.D. Baines, reported that the apprentice was, quote, daily becoming more heedless of and more disrespectful to his manager. According to ba Baines, Apprentices were no longer willing to accept the language of their former owners without an appropriate retort. If you've been to Jamaica, you'll be familiar with this kind of response. The reaction of the apprentices in the first year of apprenticeship was highly revealing. Their image of freedom differed substantially from those of the policymakers in the colonial office, as well as their former masters. For those in authority, it was critical to maintain the established order and the existing hierarchies. While there was, a recognized need, need, well, there was a recognized need to protect the apprentices, it was also important to ensure the continuity of the plantation system and, of course, the production of sugar. For the apprentices, and especially those who resisted the establishment of apprenticeship, it was difficult to comprehend this new system. Like the apprentices in Trinidad, they felt they needed no apprenticeship. They needed no training for freedom for their work on the plantations. In fact, the nature of the slaves' own economy in the Caribbean meant that they often grew much of their own food on their own provision grounds and sold it in highly developed markets. And here is a, an image of one of the markets. This is in Suriname, as you might guess from the, the background. 
And this is a, a market, a linen market, in fact, in Dominica, in the Eastern Caribbean. So in my view, the slaves' experience in these markets and in food production generally meant that they were probably better prepared for freedom than their former masters. At the onset of apprenticeship, ex-slaves wanted to be fully free. They sought unrestricted freedom and not a system of forced labor, even for part of the week. Apprentices were prepared to work for wages, but many also believed that their houses, their homes, and their provision grounds belonged to them and not to the planters. One of the most noticeable aspects of the apprentices' resistance to the, to, to the whole apprenticeship system was the role of women. They were prominent in the march on Government House in Trinidad and in several of the disturbances in Jamaica. The authorities repeatedly complained about women apprentices. For example, Governor Sligo wrote home to the colonial office, quote, that it's notorious that the women are all over the island the most troublesome. There were good reasons why women were so prominent in the resistance to apprenticeship. As the historian Thomas Holt has pointed out, female apprentices formed the bulk of the field laboring force on the plantations, just as they had during slavery. Regulations about hours and about working practices would therefore have affected women more directly than men. <clears throat> However, the explanation for the role of women as ringleaders against apprenticeship is more complicated than simply numerical predominance. In a, in a perceptive treatment of this issue, the sociologist Mimi Scheller discusses women's role in Jamaica during this period as both workers and mothers. In the end, the harsh treatment of women rebounded against the planters and helped to discredit the whole apprenticeship system. From the apprentice's point of view, one of the advantages of the apprenticeship system was the possibility of their buying, buying, buying themselves out of the system entirely. There were uh, clauses about the compulsory purchase of their freedom if they wanted to do so. And there are some surviving figures to support the view that some apprentices were able to buy themselves out of apprenticeship. In a return of the valuations from 1836 to 37, in the middle of the apprenticeship period, for Jamaica, over a thousand apprentices were successful in gaining valuations for their remaining time and were manumitted. These apprentices paid a total of nearly 30,000 pounds to their owners for their manumission. It's more than a million pounds today. So there was clearly a strong desire on the part of apprentices to manumit themselves. Some wished to do so because of the ill treatment they suffered at the hands of their masters. Others similarly sought to work for a different master or mistress or to unite their family in one location. One report suggested that many of the manumitted apprentices were young girls and boys whom the parents manumitted so the children could be educated or trained in a trade. Whatever the motivations, few of the manumitted apprentices continued in field labor. As one apprentice was reported to have said, quote, whoever here of free work a field. In other words, what free person would ever choose to work in field labor? Many of the skilled apprentices continued at their trades, but many women left working as field laborers, preferring domestic work or trading as hucksters. Interestingly, it would appear that the number of apprentices gaining their manumission and being freed was increasing rather than decreasing as the end of apprenticeship was approaching, at least for the skilled population. 
In the case of St. Vincent in 1837, a year before the ending of apprenticeship, two magistrates reported a strong desire on the part of the apprentices to purchase their manumission. So St. Vincent is down here. There was also a very, very re revealing report from St. Vincent in early 1838 that the skilled apprentices were anxious to be manumitted even at that late date because they wanted to purchase their own manumission and not, as they call it, be indebted to the law. This was even more the case once the legislation ending the apprenticeship had actually been enacted. One magistrate in St. Vincent reported that the apprentices clearly did not want to become manumitted by the general legislation. They did not want to be, as they called it, a Queen Adelaide's man. That is, free by the operation of the law, or as they say, quote, that Buckra, white man, that Buckra may change his mind and make the apprenticeship longer. In St. Vincent and probably elsewhere, apprentices had very clear ideas about freeing themselves. As in the period after emancipation in 1838, when there was a concern about re-enslavement, at this point also, there was a fear that whites could lengthen the period of apprenticeship. So apprentices, like the enslaved, clearly had an impact on the ending of the apprenticeship system. Just as with the abolition of slavery in 1834, apprentices also knew that there was a campaign in Britain to bring apprenticeship to a premature end. And here is a, uh, an appeal for a signature to a petition here in Britain to end apprenticeship. Notice. Uh, that the abolitionists considered it another name for slavery. As the agitation in Britain increased, and as some of the smaller islands in the Eastern Caribbean began to enact legislation ending apprenticeship early, some reports suggested that the system could not last. In St. Vincent, one of the stipendiary magistrates, writing in the summer of 1838 and looking back on the situation, suggested that there would have been passive resistance on the part of the apprentices if they had to continue as field apprentices after 1838. The abolitionist press in Britain, particularly a paper called The British Emancipator, had far more ominous reports about potential trouble in 1838. It republished an article in a Jamaican newspaper threatening serious resistance. One black man reportedly said, quote, if all not free the same day the king order, meaning August 1838, the whole country will rise, and we will see what Bakra and the Mulatto can do with us, for we, meaning the blacks, too much for them. The emancipator also suggested that the field apprentices had never accepted the, dis the distinction between themselves and skilled apprentices. The result on the 1st of August 1838 would be as follows, that the entire class of field laborers will claim to be placed on a footing with their fellows that they will enforce those claims by adopting a system of passive resistance, by quietly but with dogged determination laying down their hoes and refusing to work any longer as slaves. Again, equating apprenticeship with slavery. Although the newspaper discounted some of the language in these reports, it concluded that the, these views generally reflected the outlook of most of the apprentices. Let me turn then to part three, uh, freedom and freed people after 1838. Apprenticeship ended on the 1st of August, 1838, four years after the legal abolition of slavery. Historians today generally consider this date, 1838, as the beginning of full freedom in the Caribbean. 
And as you might imagine, there were celebrations all over the Caribbean on the 1st of August of that year. And here's a, a representation of a celebration, a representation probably done here rather than there, but this is how people thought people would be celebrating it. But as I'm sure you can imagine, planters and former masters were not celebrating. Many had opposed the abolition of slavery and had only been willing to consider abolition because of the compensation money they received. And significantly, planters did not envision emancipation altering either the hierarchical nature of society or their political dominance. So planters resorted to a variety of measures to ensure not only their continued dominance, but also a steady and cheap supply of labor. Faced with the possibility that ex-slaves, now free people, might leave the estates, former masters turned to a variety of coercive measures to retain their labor. This included combining rents for the ex-slaves' homes on the estates with wages, leading to exorbitant charges for the rental of homes and grounds. In fact, the rents sometimes exceeded the wages paid to the laborers. The governor of Jamaica pointed out some of the consequences of these excessive charges. He had heard of many cases in which a laborer earned five shillings a week for his work, but was charged eight shillings for rent, leaving him in debt to the plantation and with nothing to maintain his family. A further problem arose when planters simply ejected their former slaves from the plantations. These ejectments, as they were called, could arise over trivial offenses. In Barbados, Betsy Cleaver, a laborer, was thro thrown off the plantation, had her house destroyed, and her possessions thrown into the road because she had chosen to have her sugarcane processed at another estate. There were similar developments in other parts of the Caribbean. In Martinique and Guadeloupe, for example, planters imposed a head tax on every inhabitant. So here is Guadeloupe, and there's Martinique. Since this tax was higher in the cities and lower in the countryside, the aim was to keep laborers on the plantations. Moreover, the tax would force blacks to work on the estates to raise money to pay the charge. In addition, the authorities levied a, levied a tax on land, producing commodities other than sugar or coffee to limit the development of provision grounds and the production of alternative crops. So freedmen and women reacted to these measures, often by leaving the plantations when it was possible to do so. This was, was precisely what the planters had most feared. In Guadeloupe, there was a significant exodus from the plantations just before emancipation and immediately after it. Five years after the end of slavery, Guadeloupe and Martinique had lost one-fifth of their plantation workers. In the case of Jamaica, where there was abundant land not controlled by the estates, thousands of ex-slaves left the plantations to establish freeholds and independent villages. Thomas Holt calculated that by 1845, seven years after full emancipation, 20,000 small freeholds had been registered in Jamaica, encompassing a population of over 60,000 people. So over 20% of the ex-slave population had settled on small freeholds. While many of these free people continued to work at least part-time on the estates, their freeholds provided them with a significant degree of independence from the planters. Other colonies also reported significant losses of laborers from the plantations. In Dominica, in the six-month period after the onset of full freedom, 
there was almost a 40% decrease in the plantation labor force. While, it's not po while it was not possible in many cases for free people to purchase freeholds, they nonetheless made clear their views about the meaning of freedom. A magistrate in Jamaica writing about events in the western part of the island just over six months after emancipation complained about the laborers. They began, he said, they began work late, finished earlier than in the past, and had the idea that freedom, that had the idea that freedom meant they should work less than during slavery. As the magistrate put it, and this is what he said, a foolish idea having got into the Negro's head, to use his own words, he must not sell his free, he must not sell his freedom. And he, the slave, he, the free person, thinks that freedom ought at all events to produce a diminution of his manual labor, or he would be undeserving of such a boon. Other free people elsewhere in the Caribbean expressed similar ideas about labor and freedom. Writing nearly two months after emancipation, a magistrate, also in Jamaica, reported that the people had done little or no work on the plantations since the 1st of August. According to the magistrate, the free people believed they had two months to rest, and as they put it, quote, to refresh themselves. Issues of gender and labor were also highly significant to the ex-slaves. After emancipation, women often withdrew from plantation labor in large numbers. Since women had formed the majority of the field labor force during slavery, this could have dramatic effects. The Jamaican historian Swithin Wilmot has detailed the decline in the female labor force on a particular estate, Golden Grove Estate in Jamaica. He found that of the 137 women working on the estate up to emancipation, only 19 were at work in October 1838. Although European ideas of gender had a role in the withdrawal of female labor from the plantations, there are also more important factors at work. The historian Bridget Burton has emphasized the family strategies that were pursued by many ex-slaves after emancipation. Rather than working on the plantations, women chose to work in the provision grounds and in marketing their produce. This decision, of course, made economic sense, but it also provided a degree of autonomy for ex-slaves after emancipation. Independence from the plantation meant more than just autonomies, as Brereton has argued, freedom included, quote, the right to control one's own body, the right to be free of violation and abuse. This right extended to children as well. It was part of the family strategy after emancipation to keep young children out of field, field work and, if possible, to send them to school and to, or to use the older children in household production. The ex-slave's views about gender and labor, as well as about freedom, led to a series of strikes and riots in the immediate aftermath of emancipation. Across the region, free men and women resisted low wages and high rents. For example, in St. Lucia, one report soon after emancipation claimed that, quote, two-thirds of the laboring population refused to work on the estates. In St. Lucia, it's down here. There were frequent strikes on the island and many clashes with the authorities. In nearby Grenada, the authorities sought to eject an ex-slave from his house because he refused to accept the wages offered and also would not leave his home. But the attempt fail, failed as a large group of free men and women attacked the constables who sought to serve the warrant. The men and women regarded the houses as their own, given them, they said, by the queen. 
and said with violent oaths they were t determined to keep possession of them. So the post-emancipation Caribbean experienced a large number of riots and other disturbances. Frequently violent, these outbreaks occurred across the region. There were evidence that ex-slaves did not passively accept the terms of their freedom or, the, or their conditions in the aftermath of emancipation. The protests also made it clear that ex-slaves' hope for freedom had often not been realized. Instead of controlling their own labor and gaining access to land, ex-slaves struggled against low wages, high rents for their lands and houses, and even a fear that they might be re-enslaved. It's one of the ghosts of the ex-slaves talking, obviously. <laughs> One of the most significant of the post-emancipation outbreaks was called the Guerre Negra, the Black War, which took place in Dominica in 1844. There, freed men and women protested violently against the taking of a census that year. Initially, enumerators were assaulted, but the, the, the protest developed into attacks on estate property and managers. In restoring order, the militia killed four people and arrested several hundred. The ex-slaves of Dominica were motivated by a fear of re-enslavement. For many freed people on the island, this was the explanation for the enumerators taking down their names. Why else would they take down their names? While some Dominicans regarded re-enslavement as implausible, others believed that it could actually happen. Freed people in Jamaica shared these concerns. Rumors of re-enslavement helped spark several conspiracies and disturbances which broke out in 1848. In the case of Jamaica, the threat of re-enslavement was often associated with the possibility of Jamaica joining the United States as a slave state. During the riots of that year, 1848, the ex-slaves regarded August the 1st as the day the whites would choose to re-enslave them. The date was particularly significant since it was the 10th anniversary of full freedom. In addition, the planters were experiencing a severe economic crisis. As a consequence, they sought to reduce wages on the estates, often by as much as 25%. However, many ex-slaves regarded this loss of wages as a first step towards the reintroduction of slavery. Some of these factors were prominent in the Moran Bay Rebellion in Jamaica, the most important post-emancipation outbreak during this period. On October the 11th, 1865, Several hundred blacks marched into the town of Moran Bay, the principal town in the sugar parish of St. Thomas in the East. And this is, St. Thomas is right here. This is the area of the Moran Bay Rebellion. Led by Paul Bogle, a native Baptist deacon, the crowd attacked the police station before confronting the militia and the parish authorities. Firing erupted and in the subsequent melee, the crowd killed 18 people. Over the, next few peop over the next few days, local people killed two planters and attacked many plantations in the parish. And this is a picture of the leader of the rebellion. As in several other post-emancipation disturbances, women played a prominent role. At Moran Bay, the officials and the militia confronted a stone-throwing crowd in front of the courthouse. As the custis of the parish attempted to read the riot act, a member of the militia observed a woman throwing the first stone, followed by a hail of stones from other women in the crowd. 
The militia and the parish officials retreated into the courthouse, and eventually the crowd decided that the best method of attack was to burn the building down and force the volunteers and the vestrymen to come out. It is likely that women were responsible for this plan. One, one witness claimed that a woman named Rosanna Finlayson, quote, said they must go and get a fire, stick and trash, and set the schoolroom on fire. She said the white people were locked up in the courthouse, and if they set fire to the schoolroom, the whole people would be burned up alive. Five minutes later, the schoolhouse was on fire, and it was adjacent to the courthouse, and it was not long before that, that building began to burn as well. At Morant Bay, men and women were clearly responding to specific tensions in the parish of St. Thomas in the East. At the same time, many of the local problems were symptomatic of difficulties across Jamaica in the aftermath of emancipation. The common people were bitter about the continued political, social, and economic domination of the whites. Among other things, this meant a lopsided, judicial and, lopsided and partial judicial structure. Since the magistracy was dominated by planters, many free people believed that it was impossible to obtain justice in the local courts. Too often, the employers were judging the cases of their employees. High court fees also made it very difficult for laborers and small settlers to pursue cases in court. So one of the grievances of the crowd at Moran Bay and in the rebellion generally was the lack of justice in the parish. For example, when asked a reason for the rebellion the day after the events at Moran Bay, one of the rioters claimed it had broken out, quote, because the poor black had no justice in St. Thomas in the East. There was no other way to get satisfaction, only what they had done. Another problem centered around land. The people believed that their provision grounds belonged to them, and they should not have to pay rent for those lands. It is likely that a man named Augustus Hire, who was one of the planters killed in the days following the outbreak, was a target of the crowd because of his stance on this particular issue. Hire was the planting attorney for a large estate in the parish, St. Thomas in the East. And acting for the owners of the estate, he had authorized a survey on land near the estate. He'd been unable to collect rent from people he believed were squatting on the land. When the surveyor and Hire began work in July 1865, a couple of months before the outbreak of the rebellion, they were surrounded by an armed crowd of over 100 blacks. The crowd seized the surveyor's chain, broke it, and became very violent. Despite having the ringleaders arrested, Hire and his surveyor met considerable resistance when they tried again the following day. Hire recalled the precise words of one man, whose name was Henry Doyley, who grabbed the surveyor's chain. When Hire asked him what right he had to the land, this man, Henry Doyley, said, quote, what God Almighty make land for? You have plenty, we have none. The surveyor also reported the crowd told him that if we wanted war, we should have war. And his recourse, Hire's recourse, was to bring the people involved in the scuffle before the circuit court, and the case was scheduled to take place the week after Hire's murder following the outbreak of the Moran Bay Rebellion. So let me then conclude. What I've tried to suggest today was the role of the enslaved, then the apprentices, and finally free people in seeking freedom. The slaves did so in part by rebelling, famously in the case of Jamaica, under the leadership of Sam Sharp. 
The apprentices resisted apprenticeship in a variety of ways, not least in being unwilling to passively accept the terms of the apprenticeship system. Once full freedom had been enacted in 1838, freed people, former slaves, were unwilling to accept the terms imposed by their former masters, and indeed by the British government. They expected that their houses and their lands were part of the emancipation settlement. They saw that it was the planters and not themselves who were rewarded with compensation money. And the events across the Caribbean in the aftermath of emancipation suggested that they resisted the idea of re-enslavement. They resisted low wages and a one-sided judicial system. And as the freed woman in Dominica asked, and they asked as well, is this what you call free? Thank you. <clears throat> <clears throat>